Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Elephants on the patio, hyenas at the door and a leopard down the road. Just another day in the life of author Tony Park, writing on the edges of South Africa's Kruger National Park. This is where Tony continues to write his series of international best-selling thrillers set across the dark heart of the African continent. Tony has been a journalist, a press secretary, public relations professional, and in 2002 was serving with the Australian Army in Afghanistan when word came his first novel, Far Horizon, was to be published. Since then, he's maintained close ties with the armed forces, returning to Australia earlier this year to run a workshop for current and former servicemen and women encouraging them to use the creative process of storytelling to help address the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Hello, Tony. Hey, James. It's uh, nice to be on your podcast series. Thank you. You grew up in Sydney's southwest in the 60s. You're a child of the 60s and, of course, with... Barely. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly the 70s. (laughs) With the the advent of, you know, Vietnam was coming to a close um, in the early 70s, etc., what was that period like? What was growing up in the southwest of Sydney like? Oh, look, I mean, it, I, I think um, I, I had a, a, a good childhood. It was Campbelltown. We were on the edge of Sydney. It was, it was I guess, semi-rural there. I, 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 uh, um, I was able to escape across the road into the bush if I wanted to and, you know, wander around with my little brother and I and a couple of friends really with no fear at all, um, perhaps getting lost <laughs> occasionally, but but it was, I guess, you know, people can get nostalgic about the past. Um, you know, my mum and dad had to work very hard. We had a, a pretty, you know, a good a good lifestyle, but, you know, we, we were certainly not well off. Um, but enjoyable, I think, because we could, we could get out and about. Do you think that time of running away and having that open space of the bush that you did has helped inform your love of that in Africa now? No, I think it's probably not not quite. I think I grew up, you know, while I could get into the bush, I was a suburban kid, you know, and I was a townie. I've, I, I think too many years in the army reserve, spending my weekends walking around the bush <laughs> in ever decreasing circles probably cured me of any romantic attachment I might have to the bush. Really, um, I preferred to spend my time at the beach if I could, a long way away from where I grew up, or in town. Uh, going out. So Africa was a bit of a surprise to me that I would end up wanting to live away from the water in the middle of nowhere was was pretty unusual and there was nothing in my childhood or background that would indicate that would happen. There was no early DNA to suggest you'd be heading out to the deserts of, of no. the wild. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. I mean, as I said, it was a semi-rural existence, but I consider myself very much a townie. So. Finishing school, you went off and, and became a journalist yeah. and ended up working in regional publishing. Uh, what was it about uh, journalism that attracted you to the field? Yeah, it's funny. My father didn't want me to become a journalist. He had a very low opinion of journalists. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I sort of went against him and, and went in there. I enjoyed it, but I, I think what I enjoyed about journalism was was just the writing. Just so I don't think I was a particularly good journalist. I I I was not investigative. I did not like putting my foot in people's doors. I did not like going and interviewing people who'd been the victims of tragedies or had lost family members. I, I, so, so it wasn't the hunt for the story no, itself or to break, no, I, break I, a story? I don't think I was much of a reporter, but I, I liked writing mm. and I enjoyed writing features. And I, I enjoyed writing day-to-day news stories and 
um, from the time I was a little kid, I had had an interest in writing, particularly writing fiction. So the only thing I ever really wanted to do when I was a little kid was to write a novel. That was my one aim in life. It's a little bit hard to just launch into that straight away. I would have liked to also have been a helicopter pilot in the Australian Army, but I couldn't do maths or physics, so I ruled out a career in aviation in any form. Um, and I wasn't very coordinated either. But um, I loved writing, and so journalism was a good outlet for me. And it was good training, I think, for me as well too, subsequently. Um, and, but some aspects of writing fiction, not all of it. In what way? Because of the sense of story or the sense of the brevity required within the sentence structure itself or, yeah. or just that it taught you language? Yeah, I had to unlearn a lot of what I learned as a journalist. So working on local papers, as you mentioned, all the stories were by their nature very short and sharp and to the point, rarely more than two or 300 words. And so your writing style is very spare and very sparse, but I don't think that's a bad thing. But I, I had never written a paragraph of more than one sentence until I started to write novels or tried to write <laughs> novels. I had to unlearn a lot. But I think one thing journalism did help me with in terms of writing fiction is, is listening to people. And as a journalist, you, become a, a, you are trained to be an observer. So I think being able to observe people and places and the way people relate to each other and the way they speak comes in handy writing fiction because fiction is about trying to capture the essence of someone, often through their words. So often it's what the characters say uh, which reveals more about them than any offline description that you want to give them or should give them. To that point then, are people surprised that, to find that you're an Australian when you're writing about South Africa in every single novel? Oh, so, yeah. Sorry, Africa itself, oh, yeah. I should say. Yeah, very much so. My readers in South Africa and Zimbabwe uh, often want to know if I'm originally from one of those countries and have moved to Australia, uh, but I'm not. And I don't have any family connection. Indeed, the first time I went there was when I was 30, 31, I think, or 30. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so no, and and a lot of the emails I get from readers in Africa tend to start off in a similar way, and they tend to uh, begin by saying, "When I found out there was an Australian writing books set in Africa, I thought they would be rubbish." <laughs> Thankfully, in most cases, the the writers then go on to say, "But." <laughs> And I, I suppose that taps into that voice, you know, that ability to hear a voice and then translate it into the story. So you, you're talking about journalists must be able to listen. It's capturing the voice of the people and yeah. putting it in and the experience as well. Yeah, I think one of the criticisms of journalists uh, often that they get too, too much wrong and I, and, and I think that's because they're in a, in a high-pressure job but a job where you have to try and become almost an instant expert on everything. But I think when writing fiction um, set in a completely different place to where I had grown up, in a different culture, uh, one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was that it was very important to tell those stories through the words of other people and the thoughts of other people. And you can only do that by talking to people, getting to know people, interviewing them. And so while some of my characters, particularly in my earlier books, are about foreigners coming to South Africa or Zimbabwe or Mozambique or Botswana, wherever the book is said, and about their experiences, that very much reflected my my level of experience and contact with Africa. But the later books tend to be stories that uh, are told more from the point of view of people living in those countries that write about because in many cases they are the stories um, of people that I know or have met in the course of my travels. So while my characters and stories are fictitious, some of the the views expressed by my characters, some of the things that have happened to my characters happen to friends of mine in real life. 
that's sometimes a good, fun thing to write about, and it's sometimes quite a traumatic thing to write about as well. Africa has such a rich and often brutal um, political system and political history, um, and most of it still remains in, in deep unrest. But you yourself personally moved from journalism into politics when you took on the role of a press secretary and you, you attached yourself to Nick Greiner, who between 1988 to 1992 was the New South Wales Premier. And it was a time of significant change within New South Wales as you know he did something that had been unprecedented then, which was to be Premier and Treasurer simultaneously to, by his own quote, make you know run the government like a business and therefore there was enormous amounts of cost cutting to education to transport it, it would have been an extraordinary experience for a, a young person such as yourself at the time and also a very extra, uh, demanding job wouldn't it yeah it was it was a time of great change in new south wales politics and you mentioned about the problems of, of the continent of africa initially with in the beginning of that question i think one of the risks that that we we have or one of the one of the unfortunate symptoms of reporting on the continent is too often we see the the bad stuff and we see the problems on the continent and, and successes um, don't get enough coverage. But to come back to the point you're making about governments, I think, and about change in governments, uh, a, a couple of observations I've been able to make over the last 20 years um, since I stopped working in politics here and since I've been travelling in Africa is that um, uh, stable democratic doesn't necessarily have to even be democratic, but stable, accountable government and politicians who are there really to try and serve and effect good change rather than line their own pockets are the key to stability in any any country. And that's why I have some quite a high level optimism for the continent of Africa in the future, because if I look at the countries, and there's a few of them, that have enjoyed a period of stable political leadership and relatively accountable government, those countries start doing well very, very quickly. And I'm, I try to give friends of mine in countries like Zimbabwe, which is in a political mess, and South Africa, which could be doing a lot better, I try to give them a little bit of hope by, by talking about my experience in politics in Australia in that if you cast, if we are able to cast our minds back to, you know, places like New South Wales and Queensland in the 70s and 80s, to a large extent, they were rotten to the core. Mm, absolutely. Had, I mean, you had, the, especially every part of government, even including government services such as the police, yeah. New South Wales were the most corrupt police force yeah. in Australia. Exactly. We had police running the drug trade. We had politicians who were looking after their mates and lining their own pockets. And this mm. is corruption on a scale that is seen today in several African countries. But I mean, just to interrupt there, because at, during that period that you were in government was also when Nick Griner, the Premier at the time, established the... Uh, Establish ICAC. Independent Commission Against Corruption, yeah. That's right, yeah. exactly. And that was a revolutionary, uh, uh, a revolutionary initiative at the time. It was almost unheard of, and I think put the wind up an awful lot of people. Uh, but it's a, it's a very good model as well, too. Uh, and and I, I see hope for a number of the countries that I write about in Africa and that I travel in. Uh, but it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, my last book, An Empty Coast, was set in Namibia, which has now enjoyed a period of, of stable, accountable government with a new a new, um, a new president uh, elected recently with very broad populist support on a platform of stamping out corruption. But it is a country that has been doing a lot of things right. It's by no means perfect, but it's on, it's on the right track. So 
again, I think it shows that it's not all one big basket case over there. But well, taking your own experience of say major reform and, and major challenge on a social level, because uh, during that period that you were there, there were there were mass um, uh, sorry protests against mm-hmm. the education cuts, against mm-hmm. transport cuts, etc. What does it take for government to succeed in sometimes making the hard decisions, even if they are the right decisions? Are you seeing that in Africa in your experiences as you travel around? No, I mean the 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 trends the other way. The the problems that that I see on the continent uh, are the sorts of things that that people like um, like Nick Griner were addressing back in in the late eighties, and it's it's government it's becoming too self-serving and bloated, you know. One of the things Nick did was cut the number of politicians in, in New yes. South Wales um, from, I think, about 109 down to 99. Um, you have governments in Africa that have cabinets with 60 and 70 people in them and each of those ministers has two taxpayer-funded houses and cars and staff and and there is this this unfortunate link between politics and money and until that link between politics and money is broken... You can't really start to to have real change trickling down um, where it needs to happen. So it's about running governments more efficiently, running them leaner, running them smaller, if that's the case, and redirecting spending away from your own pocket into the pockets of teachers and policemen and nurses and doctors. And there's not enough of that, that happening in some of the countries that I, I visit in, in Africa. So, Tony, what drove you to Africa? Uh, James, my wife. <laughs> it was her idea, <laughs> and this was during your period. You were you were out of government by now, and you're working as a public relations professional. Um, it would have been around nineteen ninety five, ninety five. Yeah, and you found yourself in Africa just originally on a tour. Yeah, uh, my wife Nicola decided that we would go on a holiday for about three weeks to Southern Africa, to South Africa, Botswana, and and Zimbabwe. And she is the planner in our little family, in our couple, and uh, I'm the follower. So she decided we go. To, I had no, I had no desire to travel in Africa. I, I wasn't averse to it, but it's not something that I had thought I always wanted to do, or was necessarily on my list of places that I wanted to visit. We'd we'd travelled through Asia and Europe backpacking when we were younger, and I think if anything, the trip to Africa in '95 was probably the the last big trip before we would allegedly settle down and, and stop traveling. But uh, it's the sort of con- it's sort of continent that can sneak up on you and take you by surprise, and that's what happened to me. So within a couple of days of that first trip of arriving in South Africa, we were bitten by something or we breathed something in or drank something, and I don't know what it was, but we found ourselves planning to return even before the end of that first trip because we'd been hooked. We'd been sucked in by the continent straight away. And what do you think it was that really allowed you to say, this is what I need to be writing about? Because every, every novel subsequent to following your first novel has been within the continent itself. Yeah, yeah. I'd had a, a go at writing a book. Um, I left work just after that first trip to Africa in 1996, actually, with the aim of writing a novel, and I failed dismally. I, d- I did write, I completed a manuscript, and it was the biggest load of rubbish that I'd ever written. It was set in the outback in Australia, and uh, I wasn't very happy with it at all, and nobody who read it was very happy with it at all either. Um, but but, it, but did you think you needed to get that out? So you almost get, like Stephen King would suggest, you get the first one done and throw yeah, it in the drawer. Yeah, well, I got the end of it. I thought I had two options. I could either just give this up <laughs> um, or three options. I could give it up, give up my dream of wanting to write a book or I could try and rewrite this 
pile of rubbish or I could start something else. And I did none of those things. I slipped back into work doing um, freelance contract PR work. But we travelled to Africa in, again, 96, we travelled together. 97, we went back to Africa. In 98, we, we had a, a long trip where we bought our own vehicle instead of hiring a car and driving around and, and set ourselves four months, set ourselves aside four months to travel around Southern Africa and have a good look around. It was then that I started to write my second, I had a second attempt at writing a novel. And it was different to the first one. It was different because... I, I had never been to Outback Australia when I wrote that first novel. I didn't have any affinity with the place I was writing about. I think a sense of place is very important. Yet here I was on a continent that was still on one level very, still very exciting and mysterious and unknown to me, but familiar in that I, I was returning to some of the places that I'd been before. And I started writing that book also differently to the first one. The first one I had done it by the rules according to most textbooks about how to write. I had tried to plot it out. So from the moment I started writing that book, I knew how it was going to end. And I, I didn't like writing that way. But when I started writing again in Africa, um, that book, I just started writing with no plot, no idea of where it was going to go, no idea of who the characters were. I just made it up as I went along. And, and, and you've spoken previously that this more organic style of writing is just the one that works for you. It works, you know, yeah. for others. And you've kept doing that? I've done that. Every book has been exactly the same. I just have a basic premise that I start with. And I start writing and I make up the characters and I make up the story as I go along. That's the only thing that, that works for me. And you talk of a sense of place within Africa, but you've since you spend most of your year over there now, you do live on the, the edge of the, the Kruger National Park. As you travel around, you also set these novels. It's almost like each novel each year is a travelogue of where you mm. were last year, just with lots more, well, hopefully, lots more sex and violence. <laughs> yeah. It just gives me a chance to visit. It gives me the excuse to visit other countries <laughs> and to travel around. Yeah. And I do very much write the same way I did that first book and, and that I tend to set the action in the book wherever I happen to be at that particular time on that particular day. And it's for me, it's, again, coming back to those journalism days, it's about doing my research by observing rather than getting online or reading a book. But you have had your own unique experiences in Africa. Specifically, I'm thinking of one where you're in a tent with uh, lions on the other side. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, we do spend a lot of our we spend most of our time in the bush in in some of Africa's most amazing game reserves, and in some of those places are wilder than others. Um, we're in a place called Manipools on our first extended trip up in Zimbabwe in the Zambezi Valley. And uh, it's the sort of place where there are no fences around the campground. Indeed, animals walk through the campground to drink at the Zambezi River and uh, we'd have buffalo around the campsite and elephant. And uh, in the middle of the night, we heard this very low rumbling purring outside, which was two lionesses walking in ever-decreasing circles around our tiny little pup tent that was held together with sticky tape. So <laughs> there's no fence, it's just That's your tent. Right. Yeah, and it was a very scary experience, I won't lie to you. And it was interesting, my, my initial reaction, my instinct, which I said to my wife while sitting there in a pair of underpants with a pocket knife in one hand and a torch in the other hand, was that <laughs> next time the lions walked around, I should quickly burst out of the tent and run to the Land Rover, <laughs> to which she told me with a few expletives that that wasn't the smartest thing to do. Um, but the urge to run when when 
coming in close contact with a big cat or something dangerous is is primal and it's very real and of course the thing to do is not move and not make a sound and eventually the lions were chased off by a stampeding elephant so <laughs> yeah. yeah that that must inform such a different view of the world to be surrounded by nature it does um i think one of the there's a number of problems uh facing wildlife in africa and other parts of the world and poaching is certainly a huge problem particularly where we live in south africa the Rhinos are under daily threat from poaching for people wanting to use their horn for spurious reasons. Uh, elephants are still hunted for their ivory. But one of the biggest issues that that affects the future of wildlife in Africa and the rest of the world is, is loss of habitat and habitat destruction where man, through his sort of rapacious needs, needs to claim ever more and more um, wild areas to the detriment of, of animals. But I, I also see places like where we live and, and other places I've visited where, where humans and animals can live in relative harmony, you know, side by side. So the little reserve that I live on on the edge of the Kruger Park does have its own animals that kind of hang around all the time. And we are visited by leopard. We're visited by lion. Every once in a while, elephants come through our fence from the Kruger National Park. And uh, if everybody kind of just takes it easy and doesn't get too hysterical or upset about things then we can all kind of exist peacefully side by side and to me that's that's influenced my writing a lot quite a, a lot of the books while they're kind of action thrillers with a bit of sex and romance have an environmental angle to them or a wildlife angle to them and i try and highlight sometimes the plight of um of of animals and and i also try and highlight some of the successes and a lot of the successes um particularly i've mentioned namibia before which i was writing about in my last book are programs that uh, don't necessarily fence animals off in a national park but work more with local communities that have wildlife living close to them or within their farms or within their areas to look for strategies and means where people and wildlife can coexist to the benefit of each other. So people are, are taught that um, uh, elephants, even lions, can be a, a benefit to them uh, through increased tourism revenue and people coming along. But that, that also requires them to, to put in place certain strategies to protect themselves and to protect their crops and things. Why is there such therapeutic power in the sharing of our stories? I think uh, writing is something that uh, that is uh, a deeply personal activity on on one level. Uh, I think it helps on another level to be able to express yourself, and uh, that can be for fun. Um, it it may have other other benefits. Um, I, I was recently asked to present a writing course, as you mentioned, to to current and former servicemen, many of whom had served in Afghanistan, but also some some people who'd served back in Vietnam. So there was a good range of ages, but the the problems they faced in many many ways were identical. Um, this uh, sort of dissociation that they they still felt from society, this this position that they were in, where they had once been part of a a team, perhaps even a family, if you like, in the defence force, serving in in war zones, um, at the kind of the peak of their their professional careers, and then sometimes finding themselves somewhat cast adrift when they're out in society, but with the interesting stories to tell and stories that they. They wanted to tell perhaps at some appropriate time in their life. So it, it could be further down the track. And is it a lack of relatability when they return to civilian life or is it that there's just no one to talk to 
about these. Stories. I think it's a bit of both. I think uh, once they leave the family, if you like, of the defence force, there there aren't people who can perhaps understand some of their experiences. Um, they lose the the if you like almost like the sanctity of the of the family where they can discuss things quite openly. It can be very different for difficult, I believe, for people to discuss some of the traumatic things that have happened to them with their own family, with their real family, per se. Um, I, I think one of the things I picked up from presenting the course and thinking about uh, how it was going to work, it was run by a group called the Military Art Program um, over in, in Perth, who also using uh, other creative arts, painting and drawing as, as an outlet as well, is that activities such as, 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 um, as artwork, um, sculpting, painting, writing, uh, are not really a substitute for therapy and, and shouldn't be considered that way, nor um, necessarily um, uh, therapeutic in themselves, but they are uh, a creative and positive use of, of people's time. And, and I think one of the, the problems that seems to arise with PTSD is, is that people will close themselves off from the outside world, soldiers I've interviewed, have, uh, and many have, have the same experience where they're almost too scared to leave the house. They, 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 they get locked in a bubble that they can't get out of. So they are by nature spending more time alone. But uh, uh, the fine arts, painting, drawing, sculpting, writing are a, a creative and positive use of that that quiet time that could otherwise be spent, you know, in perhaps a, in harmful ways. So as someone who served in Afghanistan yourself in 2002, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, you seem to have found an outlet in your creative writing where you've actually written about Afghanistan. You've actually used, say, for example, in Zambezi, the opening lines of Zambezi are Afghanistan, a dead place. And then you go on to describe it in quite detail regarding the dust and the dirt. When you did that, was that getting out anything for you, or that those memories, or that ex that experience of your time in Afghanistan? I, I think it prob probably more likely what it was was just me um, following an age old adage that many writers follow, which is <laughs> write about what you know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it's easier if you are uh, if you're trying to get started on a new book in particular, if mm. you can start with something that you know and something that's familiar to me. I actually started writing Zambezi when I was serving in Afghanistan in my downtime at nights and on weekends, where one of the the sort of the uh, <laughs> ironies of of serving in military operations is that they can be in incredibly busy and uh, almost exciting on one level, but but very full on. Um, but for a lot of the time, you're sitting around doing nothing. It's a lot of that too. hurry up and wait. Yeah, there's a lot of downtime and, and really nothing, nothing much to do in your downtime when you're locked on a big base, as I was. I was, in effect, you know, on this massive base um, called Bagram near Afghanistan uh, where you didn't really get out much in, in the sort of work that I was doing as a staff officer. Um, so for me, it was writing about what I knew. I was able to put in some of the scenes of my day-to-day -day life in Afghanistan, which which are in that book. Um, and, you know, escaping in a way as well too, escaping the confines of the base on which I found myself. Uh, so I think, it, look, when I look back at those books, I don't reread my old books, but if I did, I think it would be interesting for me to have a little snapshot of where I was at that time and what I was doing. Did, did they come to you after the event and explain what their experiences were like or how they might actually be able to turn this into a novel or a story or a sharing process. It was a, a, a mixture. Uh, there was uh, one very interesting guy I was chatting to, Stan, was a Vietnam veteran who, who had been writing um, basically for about the last 20 years or so. And he had actually penned, uh, oh, I can't remember, about half a dozen 
novels, I think, of various genres, some science fiction, some military stuff. And the interesting thing about it is he, he, he loved writing a great deal, um, but had, had never sought to be published. So he, he was writing purely for himself. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's really interesting because that's how I started. I, I certainly, I think like a lot of writers, I hoped, dreamed, wished that I might get published one day. But once I started getting into it, I, I found that it was a really enjoyable activity. And even before I was published, I had a number of false starts, but, but I never really regretted most of those. It was, it was enjoyable. So for me, it was an outlet, a, a, a pursuit, if you like, and a, and a passion. Another guy I spoke to uh, was a survivor of the terrible Black Hawk helicopter crash back in 1996. Mm. And uh, he was, uh, he'd attended the course with the view that in, in due course, he, he would be ready to write about his experience. He, he wasn't yet, but he was almost kind of equipping himself with the tools to do that at a time when he, when he was able to do that. So I think there was two quite different approaches to the, you know, the benefits of writing, if you like. You've had a very long association with the Australian Army. You've, you've been part of the reserve from your early years. What is it that appeals to you? What is it that drove you to end up going to Afghanistan by choice as such? Well, I mean, it's, I guess, probably like a lot of young people, I joined the army not thinking that I would ever go on a military operation. I think I joined it for a bit of fun when I was 17. Um, but things changed. The, the nature of the world changed since I joined the army in 1982. You know, most of our instructors were, were Vietnam veterans and, and Australia had, had, was really living in pleasant isolation from the rest of the world. And while there were conflicts happening at the time around the world, there was not even the merest suggestion that Australia might get involved in them. And that happened for many, many years uh, afterwards. But uh, from sort of 1999, when we became involved in the um, uh, Interfet Force and the Intervention Force in East Timor and subsequent peacekeeping operations uh, through to our involvement in Afghanistan and later Iraq, the whole nature of military life changed dramatically in, in my lifetime. We went from being a peacetime army where it was, it was incredibly rare, almost a privilege to be sent overseas on anything, whether it be an attachment to a UN force or, or some overseas exercise with a, another force, to a situation where even people like me, an Army Reserve PR officer, would get the phone call and say, would you like to go to Afghanistan, <laughs> so, which I didn't really expect in my wildest dreams. Um, and, and for me, uh, it certainly wasn't something that I hesitated about because whether you're a, a desk officer, which I very much was, um, or a, a fighting soldier, um, you know, like a commando or a special air service guy, some of these guys I've interviewed in the course of my work, to, to go and serve overseas is really the pinnacle of your career as a, as a soldier, whether you're a part-time soldier or a full-time soldier. So I think most of us go over there, you know, fired up, you know, ready to go and thinking that this is really what I've been waiting for and, and training for. And uh, some of the problems happen further downstream. Right. You've written uh, a series of non-fiction books as well, or certainly co-authored, and some of those have been with ex-military personnel. What is it that attracts you to their story beyond others? The, the books that I've written, the non-fiction books I've written, I find personally very interesting to read uh, as well as write because the stories are stories of ordinary people. 
ordinary people who have been put into extraordinary situations and had to confront things that would have been beyond their wildest nightmares. So if going overseas and serving your country as a full-time soldier or a part-time soldier is a, is a dream, some of the things that can happen are very nightmarish. And, and I'm interested in the way that, that people um, have coped, but I think it's also interesting for me, having served in the military, is to hear the stories of, of other people who've experienced far worse things than I ever did and, and yet how, they, how they're able to use the... Um, or draw on that kind of ethos that they've served in in the army to to try and help themselves when times are tough. You know, so, it's almost that definition of grit that, yeah. that they say we're almost raising a new generation without grit in yeah. many ways because it it seems to be we don't need it on a societal level day to day. You know, and you, I suppose this is at least where you get to tap into the motivations for where they find that grit. Yeah, and then how they how they fight. Very hard. Don't always succeed by by any stretch of the imagination. Sometimes it's the consequences are tragic. I mean, there, there's been an incredible number of veterans who've committed suicide in in the last decade or so because unfortunately they've they haven't been able to carry on. Um, one of the two of the books, well, one of the books is about uh, veterans from Afghanistan who have walked the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea as part of their therapy. And it's it's an interesting exercise. It's a program uh, organised by a guy called Brian Freeman, who who I wrote the books with, who's himself is an ex-commando who'd served in in Timor, and he's kind of stumbled on this idea that arduous team activities can play a part in helping people on their journeys. Again, they're they're kind of if they're not therapy themselves, they're a, they're a therapeutic use of people's time. And the soldiers that I interviewed, who'd been on these these rather arduous treks, some of these guys are often carrying serious physical injuries as as well as mental issues. One one guy had lost both legs, yes, and and was almost dragging himself over the track. And a couple of things came out. One was what a lot of these soldiers had missed on leaving the army was the sense of family, the sense of camaraderie, the sense of um, of being part of a family again. And and the other thing that that they that did come through is that for them, uh, some of the most rewarding aspects were when they were in a position of helping each other. So while the activity might have been beneficial to themselves per se, in terms of getting together with a bunch of people and having a bit of exercise and getting out of their their isolated lives, it, it was when they were helping their mates. It was when they had to pick someone up and help them carry on, that, that that seemed to be very beneficial for them. And a lot of that is, is to me, uh, represents the more positive side of things of, of serving in the military where it's not really, if you're an Australian soldier or sailor or airman, in my experience, it's not about waving the flag and going and serving your country or fighting for your country. It's about going overseas, doing your job, and, and one of the key things that motivates you is to look after the man or woman next to you. And it, it is very much that aspect which is played up on Anzac Day, which is about mateship. It is, yeah. It's very in – in its purest form of mateship. Yeah, and it's it's about self – it's not self-sacrifice, but it's about not putting yourself first. It's about – it's not even putting the team first or the mission first. It's knowing that if you are able to look after the person next to you, 
um, that you do that because you you do that in the knowledge that if something happens to you, uh, that um, that person will hopefully step up and look after you. It was interesting, I, I spoke in South Africa recently at an Anzac Day service. I was the guest speaker there and I recounted that I had been very fortunate to meet most of, all of our surviving Victoria Cross winners and, and another one who'd passed away, um, Roden Cutler, Arthur Roden Cutler. And in, in most of the cases of those people who had won the VC, they didn't win their medals for charging a machine gun or, you know, or, or killing lots of bad guys. Um, in nearly every one of those cases, they won their medals because they put themselves at considerable risk to go and help someone else whether that be uh, Vietnamese fighters under their charge in Keith Payne's case in Vietnam or an Afghan interpreter who was serving with the Australians in Mark Donaldson's case in Afghanistan. Yeah, these extraordinary uh, demonstrations of selflessness as opposed to moments of great action in some ways. Yeah, and I think if there is something that you wanted or I wanted or anyone wanted, wanted to take from, from a, a service in, in the Defence Forces is that society, the world in general might be a slightly better place if we thought about the person next to us more often than ourselves. And so, Tony, last question. Are you an Australian with your heart belonging to Africa or an African with your heart belonging to Australia? Oh, I count myself very lucky to be able to divide my life between two in amazing continents that probably have more in common with each other than than what most people think I'm able to enjoy the benefits of, of living amongst wildlife in the African bush and and also able to enjoy the benefits of living in a safe, stable, well-run country. Tony, thank you so much. There's so much more we could talk about and we will have to do this again sometime. Thanks, James. My pleasure. Thank you. And Tony's latest book, Red Earth, is now available in stores and online. This has been Conversations with Writers. I'm James Rickards, and please connect with us via Twitter at ConversationsWW or find us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.